All right, we're live. We're hot. We're live, guys. Cutter Nation podcast coming to you live on YouTube and Twitch. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please go ahead. It's on Apple Podcasts, all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube and Twitch. Uh, looking for those subscriptions. Don't forget to check out our website. If you're interested in training with us, you're in San Diego, California. We've also got some apparel. Actually, hold we're hold on the apparel. We have a blockchain issue into the apparel game right now, but we'll solve that here soon. But I'm super excited about today's guest. Cass and I, uh, uh, Cass introduced me um, to Tyler via uh, Twitter at, at first. Um, but Tyler Yerby, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Thanks, man. I greatly appreciate it. Pretty stoked to be on and I'm sure we'll get into some good topics here today. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, Cass introduced you to me or, or you and, and um, your, your company and, and right before the ABCA in Asheville um, um, last year. And, and I just remember looking at some of the videos and I'm such a video guy and I, I really like to absorb a ton of information. So I went through all of your videos at this point and Cass's, Cass's and his and I relationship has been really, really cool because we're kind of very yin and yang and he just introduces me to people or things or ideas and goes, look at this, learn at this. And I remember seeing you and I'll never forget you looking like you're doing some kind of fencing or what I would say nerd talk, uh, lightsaber move uh, with a kid and he's trying not to get hit by it. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I did it the very next day with some of our kids training and they had no idea what was going on. Like they got, you know, they got, they lost a leg, they lost an arm. And I was like, look, this is a lightsaber. You know, hey, this is a lightsaber. You're going to get, if it touches you, you lose that body part, right? So it just came into a little game. And, and um, you know, I, I just really think it's important for us to help get, spread the word with our network of people, of quality people like yourself. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day. And I'm, I'm ready for this deep dive for us to go into some crazy stuff um, because I'm sure you have something. Because I remember sitting there in the hot stove circle with Randy Sullivan and just mouth open, just so unbelievably excited about all the information that was coming from you guys. So thanks for a minute. Um, why don't you let everybody know who you are, where you're at, kind of how you got here, you know, take your time, walk us through the whole thing. All right, man. Well, first off, I appreciate that, um, you know, all that, that sharing of information as far as how you viewed what I've done and you know, my place in the industry. I greatly appreciate it. It's uh, kind of uh, come together over time and I've been influenced by a lot of different people and a lot of different uh, minds out there, brilliant minds out there. And so greatly appreciate the opportunity of being on the podcast. Um, you know, gosh, where do I start? I think I'd like to start by something we were talking about very briefly off air before we jumped on that you just mentioned right there. And that's about making movement fun. I think that's that's one thing that I, I really and truly want and inspire to do uh, with anybody that I work with, whether that be the youth, because I work with a lot of youth athletes as well as uh, professional athletes at different sports is making movement fun because if movement becomes fun, it's something that you're inspired to do and that you want to do on a regular basis. So we can kind of dive into that part of it uh, later of how I kind of interleave that in uh, to the to the other work that we do. But uh, for me, let's see. Uh, been in the industry about 15 years. Um, I started in I started in the strength and conditioning and sports sector. So I was a, a football coach, American football coach for uh, Northeastern State University, which is a Division II school in Oklahoma. Uh, I was a running backs coach, worked with the punters and kickers, and then I did strength conditioning as well. And so my my love for the game is there. It has always been uh, with football and baseball specifically. But uh, like I said, for me, it's about helping making movements uh, fun for people. That way they enjoy it and inspire, you know, aspire to do it. 
And so I won't fill in the, the middle chunk of my time. I, like I said, I've been in, industry, been in the industry for quite some time. But in the past, I'd say five to seven years, I've really come into uh, a, a time period for me that has been overly inspiring for a number of reasons. And that's because I really never had much of an understanding that there were, t there were different theories of motor learning. I just assumed that there was just one way you did something. And that was the way that I was taught in textbooks. And I needed to go step by step and chunk things together and, uh, you know, procedural type knowledge. And there was one way to do it. And it was very linear. And so that's the opposite of essentially how I am now. I view learning as a nonlinear process. I view learning as something that, uh, that has ups and downs and curves and turns and, um, you know, times of progression and regression and, you know, things that are stagnant. And w where I, I see myself as a coach, I see myself as more of a problem setter, more of a problem designer, uh, maybe an environment architect uh, versus it being the deliverer of all knowledge. And I think that's something that unfortunately a lot of coaches still think that they're placed in the, in the learning space because that's kind of how I view it as the learning space. Their place in the learning space is to be that bearer of all knowledge, deliverer of all knowledge. So to kind of trace back a little bit, um, like I said, it's, it's, it's been a long kind of nonlinear journey. And I, I moved here to the, or moved uh, to Minnesota back in 2010 and took a position at the University of Minnesota where I was doing my master's in kinesiology. And I was working with Olympic sports. So I was working primarily every sport, but football pretty much. And I was working a lot with baseball, volleyball, hockey, learning a lot from different sports, learning what, what information was present in that sport, what helped athletes move and be effective in their particular sports. But I was primarily working in the strength and conditioning realm. So I viewed myself as someone that my job was to help make them stronger, more powerful, faster, and primarily straight ahead at that time. That's the way I viewed it, straight ahead. And I needed to make them uh, have a good conditioning or uh, very, very dense capillary system so they could deliver oxygen to their working muscles. And that was that was really about it. That's kind of how I viewed myself. And I was very prideful about it. And and I still associate uh, still associate with being a, a strength and conditioning individual. But I wouldn't wear that particular hat now uh, because I view I view movement quite different than I used. Oh. So. Um, I was there for, I was there for, gosh, you know, a little, little over a year ish in that particular department. And at that particular time, I was uh, seeing that I was going to have an opportunity to, uh, to work in, am I okay? Uh, yeah, you're okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Was, you're good. Go ahead. Yeah, no worries. So, uh, at that particular time, you know, for me, I, I'd been in the industry, been in the department for a little bit of time. And I realized that I, I wanted to work in American football. So I ended up doing that for several years at the University of Minnesota, and I was still viewing myself at that time as the deliverer of all knowledge. I was the bearer of all truth. I had the perfect way in which each individual was going to move. So I was delivering that uh, to each athlete, and each athlete needed to move in the exact same way. And that was really when my first aha moment, major aha moment came. And that moment was whenever I was watching our football team at Minnesota. We were playing Northwestern that particular day. And I remember thinking to myself, these athletes are, are moving differently than how we're teaching them to move in our speed and agility sessions. And it, it asked, it began, you know, I asked myself why I started beginning, you know, down this journey of what, what else could be involved in this particular situation or how else could I contribute to them becoming a better and more effective or dexterous mover in their, in their sports that they were playing in this particular sport being football. 
And so now off we go into my journey. I am now the co-founder and co-director of education at Emergence. And we are a movement skill education company that primarily uh, delivers information from an ecological dynamics perspective. So essentially the mutuality that exists between the performer and the performance environment and how that relationship is so impactful because it's going to be the, the driver of how they're going to be able to act within their sport. And I can go into that here in a second. And then I'm also the director of athlete learning at Starter Sports Training. And we are a baseball, softball, kind of growing into a football company here in the uh, Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And so what I do in that particular role is I do work in the performance side where we do a lot of different things. I think we'll probably discuss here in a second that are very different than what you would normally expect to see in a strength and conditioning uh, type space or a performance type space. But then we also, or I also, excuse me, I sit in with the baseball staff. I sit in with the softball staff and we use a session planning and reflection tool. And so the coaches fill out a session planning and reflection tool. I evaluate sessions. Uh, we essentially just use this tool as a vehicle for conversation about how we could make the practice uh, better for that particular athlete. And it's a very athlete specific. Um, there's a coach athlete relationship, of course, but my role is essentially just provide suggestions to allow the experts in the sport, you know, the pitching coach, the hitting fielding coach to be just that the experts, but from my perspective to provide um, some ideas of how it could be uh, a better learning experience for the youngster or for the advanced athlete, whoever it may be, that's my role. And so we can kind of unpack that a little bit, but those are the two things that I, I'm into now. Um, emergence is something that I'm very, very passionate about, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to work in sports and be in this role of an athlete learning uh, coach. Does the emergence have a brick and mortar? We do not. No, no, we do not. We are we are primarily online, and it's kind of funny because um, we considered it, but really and truly, our the genesis of emergence was how can we reach as many people as possible? And uh, myself, we. yeah, yeah. So there's uh, there's about there's six of us in the in the company. Uh, myself and Sean Mishka are the two that founded the company, and Sean works exclusively with um, NFL football players. And then I work primarily with football and baseball, but do work with youth and a lot of other sports. And then we have four other individuals that are part of Emergence. And so we do not have a brick and mortar facility. We are primarily an online or delivering education in-person company. And it centers around providing the foundation for uh, principles of how human beings are able to solve problems in their sport. And then we tailor that information uh, towards whatever sport it may be, or we deliver the information and more importantly, allow individuals like yourself that are the professionals in your particular sport to use that information to then guide movement behavior for, for your athletes. Yeah, you, you said some stuff that, that just took me back to Nashville real quick. A skill acquisition, I remember talking to Cass about this, um, and it's something that I've always talked about in the baseball world. How did you come to this Keyword, this phrase, skill acquisition. Where did you learn this thing? First time I read the word skill, I had the words skill acquisition. I read them in uh, 2010. I was at the University of Minnesota, and I'd read the word skill before, or I, maybe I'd stumbled upon skill acquisition, but it really never stuck. And I remember reading that, and the word acquisition that grabbed me because that was something to where I wanted my athletes to be able to acquire that skill and. Uh, to kind of fast forward a little bit, I didn't realize at the time when I saw the word acquisition, I, it, to, me, to me at that time, it meant they needed to possess that skill. They need to own it and own it forever. And so that's what I was trying to teach them at that time. So now, you know, going back to our conversation at uh, ABCA in Nashville at the beginning of this year, uh, the, the term skill acquisition now means something entirely different to me. 
I actually view it as skill adaptation. Uh, perception, uh, you know, perception is a is a dynamic process, and it involves the entire body of the athlete, but it also involves the relationship that athlete has with the environment. And so, when I use the word adaptation, it can't be, or it doesn't exclude essentially where that athlete is and where they're performing whatever movement that is they're doing. And so, if we focus just individually on the athlete, that may have some merit, but we're excluding where that movement is occurring. And so um, my man, Nikolai Bernstein once said, no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering where it emerged. And so for me, if it's gonna be the emergence of skill, skill is gonna be something that is adapted over time to where my, my system is having to calibrate or recalibrate to whatever problem it is I'm solving. So I, I view sport as a problem solving process. It's funny that you say calibrate and everything from there. These are all hot words. I mean, I, we talk about this stuff all the time. We, we actually talk about um, there is a way to actually um, learn your mistake based on where you throw a baseball. The ball should tell you actually what you do right or wrong based on the location of it. Um, and, it and it's a 3D mapping thing where your hand, you know, just people call it release point, right? Mm -hmm. But there, there's not a lot of information that I've seen, at least that comes with it, right? And we have an easy thing to know that if the ball's high relatively, you're early, if the ball's down relatively, you're late. If you pull it to the left, you're inside. If you're to the right, you're outside, right? And so like having them tune into that and start making adjustments after each throw kind of gets them to dial into their own process a little bit more. Is that, where, would you define that as acquisition or adaptation? Certainly adaptation, because when you said tune in, you know, I hear pick up, uh, they're sensitive to their, to their surroundings, they're sensitive to the way in which they're moving. And it's the process of solving that problem. So it's not something they've solved it. And now they're, they're packaging that somewhere in their backpack, that way they can pull it out of their backpack later on. Um, you know, it's something where they're continually having to solve that problem. And yes, there's going to be similarities with, with how they interact with certain problems meaning they're going to throw maybe several one-two counts, of course. But that one-two count is going to be in a different setting. There's going to be different light that is structuring the surrounding. Is it a night game where there's artificial lighting? Is it going to be a day game? During the day game, is the light reflecting off of surfaces, which is going to affect the way I'm able to throw a particular pitch? Um, is the surface that I'm throwing on the exact same each time? Am I fatigued that day? Do I have aches and pains that day? Do I feel pretty amped up that day? So I can keep going, but you can kind of see where I'm going with this to the point to where something is changing all of the time. So whenever, if we trace back to what I mentioned earlier, as far as being a problem setter or a problem designer, or maybe an environment architect, um, as a coach, our, our job is to help facilitate the process of uh, self-organization and facilitate the process of this athlete solving that problem. So when you ask the question um, with them, you know, seeing where the pitch actually was located, that's me going through the process and based on how I felt that ball come out of my hand, whether it was hit, whether it wasn't hit, whether it was something that was sailing out of the zone, all of that's going to allow for me to gather more information and to hopefully be able to be more effective in my sport. It's beautiful. What, what is like, um, I mean, I don't know if we want to stay big, high level, but I was just curious of what your day-to-day -day stuff looks like with some of the people that you're training. You know, what is the structure of, you know, I think that's going to be pretty accessible for a lot of our people because, you know, they come and they got 75 minutes with us or two and a half hours with us, depending on what they're doing. But what what is your like actual practice look like? 
So I'll give you two examples because, like I said, I work with American football and American football is the sport in which I would be perceived as a coach. And so something that we had kind of talked about uh, way prior to this call, obviously, is, is how do I view myself in the industry? And I view myself as a sport movement specialist or a sport movement coach. And what does that mean? I think we should define that first. Uh, sport movement specialist is someone that works uh, within a particular sport to help the athlete experience information that will be available for pickup in their sport. So I'll give you an example in the sport of American football. If I'm running through ladders or if I'm touching cones with my eyes on the ground, I'm developing what's referred to as information movement couplings. But those information movement couplings are uh, quite irrelevant to what I'm going to be doing in my sport because I need to be able to pick up gaps that are emerging. I need to be able to pick up orientation of an individual's body. I need to be able to pick up the spin of the ball that's being thrown to me. I need to be able to pick up um, haptic information as I'm exploring a surface, that surface being a defender that's in front of me and I'm an offensive lineman that's trying to work them through a block. So my point being is that my job as a sport movement uh, coach in American football is to design in opportunities that contain or allow for information to be present for pickup in a very similar way to what their sport would allow. Now, I can go a little bit deeper there for you. So if I'm working with a particular athlete, and maybe I have a handful of athletes out there, but this particular session is designed for um, a quarterback, I'm going to design in through analysis of film, maybe in-person analysis, what I've seen that he has done an exceptionally good job of. That way he could potentially exploit that later on, whether that's making deep ball, uh, deep throws over the middle, whether that be exploiting the gaps and weaknesses of a defense uh, by running the football. But I'm also going to design in opportunities for him to interact with stuff he hasn't done as well. So to give you an example, I've given this a couple of times, but I think it, it uh, conveys the message uh, quite well. If a quarterback struggles throwing deep routes over the middle, rather than me just yelling at him, throw the ball better, th throw it in a tighter window, of course that's what he's trying to do. I need to design in an environment or I need to allow for him to experience that more often so he can develop what's referred to as these information movement couplings or may have uh, heard them referred to as perception action couplings. So instead of me telling him to just throw it better, I'm going to use what's referred to as the constraints led approach, where essentially I'm going to manipulate whether it be task constraint, individual constraints or environmental constraints, and they're all confluent together, meaning they merge, they're interwoven together. So he needs to throw deep balls more effectively. We need him to gain experience throwing deep balls more effectively. So rather than having just a traditional American football field, I will actually squeeze the field. So now I have narrowed the space or narrowed the workspace. So let's say the numbers and beyond towards the boundary are now unavailable. That is out of bounds. So you have that contextual prior information. And then rather than being first and 10, and he's trying to move the ball 10 yards and maybe three or potentially four downs, we've made it to where it's now second and 20. So essentially it's second and 20, meaning he's needing to stretch that ball 20 yards in two plays, or I say second 20, excuse me. He needs to, he's to move it uh, 20 yards in two plays. So I'm trying to move that ball down the field in two plays. And so he's encouraged to pick different opportunities or pick different plays that are going to allow him to move the ball down the field effectively. So now he is searching, hopefully discovering, and then exploiting space that allows for him to do just that. And so with that being said, it doesn't mean that he has to throw a particular throw or pick a particular throw. It just means that he is now searching for those type of throws. And if what's afforded to him is a, let's call it a six-yard slant route across the middle, then he's going to pick that six-yard slant because all of a sudden the safeties or maybe the linebackers have started to float or they've started to drift a little bit and that gap emerged. 
And, you know, that athlete picks up, let's say, eight, nine, 10 yards. Now it's, um, you know, it, well, I said second and 20. Now it's the last play he has, and he's got to move it maybe 10, 12 yards in that one particular play. So now what the athlete is doing is the athlete is searching for those opportunities. That way his perception can be the driver of his movement. So my job is to essentially manipulate rules. My job is to um, put him in a situation if he throw if he struggles throwing with wind present to where he's now going to throw with wind present. And so you're seeing kind of how I'm helping design an opportunity for him to experience stuff that maybe he needs work with. So I'll give you an example in baseball to bring this and make this more relevant for, for your guests here. And hopefully that, that example gives you a little bit of an idea and gives you an example of my background. If I'm working with a pitcher and we're working on uh, that pitcher being able to be effective with his fastball. Now, hopefully a lot of people out there are throwing a lot of live ABs, whether that be in the cage if it's cold outside, whether that be in, you know, out on the field if you have enough athletes. If I'm doing that, rather than just having the athlete throw to a stationary target, which I know oftentimes is what we do, we don't have the confluence of that anxiety and pressure or realization of there being a, a ball hit back at me with a live at bat. But if I'm trying to work on location, work on you know moving my fastball across the zone, as the pitching coach, I may work with that athlete and say, hey, today we're going to work on your fastball. I'm not saying you can't throw any type of off speed. But we have three at-bats, and each at-bat, you're only able to pick one off-speed pitch. So now what he's doing is he's trying to find ways to exploit gaps or weaknesses in swings by, by moving the ball around the zone. And in order to do so, he's got to go through that process of solving that problem in different ways. But maybe he's constrained with the ways in which he can go about doing so. Um, as the pitching coach, I may actually have, not telling the, uh, the uh, pitcher this, but I may have the batter squeeze the plate a little bit. Why might he do that? Because now maybe that uh, you know, presents an invitation or an opportunity for action for that hitter, or excuse me, for that pitcher to then exploit that gap on that inside part of the plate because it's going to be more challenging potentially for that hitter to get around on that particular pitch. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this to where now you're going through the process of throwing. You're not telling him exactly how to throw the pitch. Maybe you provide some suggestions here and there, but more than anything, you're allowing him to calibrate and solve that problem in different ways. Yeah, I love yeah that. the two I, things that jump out to me are fast, slow, and then just slider machines. So um, we do when, when I do hitting, um, and this is stolen straight from John's mouth. Um, he simplifies everything in the fast slow, so he shows people the game through fast slow patterns. And so this is the first thing that I teach kids. And I I had a pro guy kind of arguing back and forth of being like, I don't really re need, I don't need to rethink my pitch recognition or my game plan. I was like, well, I really think you do because there are these <laughs> patterns that you, you aren't aware of because you haven't thought to look at it through this lens before, mm -hmm. right? Everybody is like hunting a fastball or has an approach where it's like hunt fastballs until we get two strikes and then we battle. But it's like, well, if you pay attention, you'll see that these patterns emerge by just looking for them. So the first thing that I thought of that is very much in your world is fast, slow seems to resonate. The other thing is just a, a slider. So I, I see most people pull off the baseball when they hit, just in, as a huge generalization, right? And so when you throw a ball that starts at their face and ends down in a way, that pitch alone forces them to self-organize in a certain way in order to be successful, right? So I have 
I'm, I'm saying these things to say as a coach, just jumping into hitting. I mean, I had, I had like 15 hitting sessions yesterday and we didn't do hitting until two months ago, you know, and I've done a ton of hitting in my past, but it's, my point is, is the transition has been yesterday. I felt really confident that the guys that I had up needed to see a ton of machine. So after my first session, everybody just saw a ton of machine and sure enough, they all struggled mightily with it. And so it, it shows me that like what my stuff needs to do, like they need to be able to just like wake up and compete at some point. But also when I take away their routine, that has a huge thing on it. So I'm, I'm doing these things and it's hard for me to actually commit to that, right? To sit back and say, I'm just going to sit and create this environment today and I'm not going to have much to do with how they're moving. I'm going to pay attention to how they move. I'm going to make suggestions. But anyway, um, it's, it's hard because I know yeah, what the context yeah. of their life is. You know what I mean? I know what they, they're expecting. You bring up a, a really interesting point there. Well, a lot, of, a lot of things. But number one, you bring up an interesting point. You mentioned the machine. And when I was when I was talking earlier about information being, being available for pickup that is going to be similar to their sport. I'm not saying never, ever use the machine. That's not what I talk about whenever I talk about with baseball coaches. But at the same time, one thing I want them to be aware of is, yes, there's still in-flight information. So there is still ball flight information that the athlete's allowed to pick up or able to pick up, you know, spin rate and so on and so forth. But with that being said, um, I ask coaches, what is it missing whenever it's coming out of a machine? What information would be available or could be available for pickup? Uh, for that athlete in the sport of baseball that's missing whenever a machine's used maybe too often. And I usually am asking this question because they're coming to me saying my athletes are struggling. They've been off the ball lately. They're not making a solid contact. But when they do, there you know there's not much force behind it. And when I start digging, oftentimes there's either been a lot of T work or there's been a lot of machine work, one of the two. Now, cl very clearly, you can see as baseball coaches, like, okay, well, what's missing from a pitching machine? Well, there's arm slot, there's body orientation, there's angle, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be very, very important for the early pickup of a hitter to be able to perceive what information they need to and to know what hit, uh, what uh, pitch is coming. And so that's all referred to as online information, information that I'm picking up, um, you know, at that moment that's going to be able to specify my current future you know, how I'm potentially able to interact with that ball whenever it hits the plate. And obviously it's a so very like, quick act. Can, can, I, can I go through my motion just to add some information right there? Is, is, is that a, an opportunity for me? It will certainly, in my opinion, help out. That's something that some of the individuals that are, that are using and working through an ecological approach to learning within baseball have started to add. Um, I think it's better. I think that I'd rather see a live arm, but there's there's reasons for having a machine, right? I mean, if of I'm going to be right, here, of course, been, if I'm going to if I'm working uh, facing a team where you know the, the uh, pitcher is going to be able to throw 90 plus, and there's nobody in my stable that can throw anywhere near that, well, I need to be able to pick up that type of speed. <laughs> well, John, maybe you can. I mean, you can throw the ball, yeah. that much, but I can't. So if I'm the only one in the stable that can throw maybe mid 80s or something, and I don't have uh, much of a breaking pitch whatsoever. And even if I'm working live ABs, I might need them to perceive that speed. And so there are certainly times for that. Or if there's massively fatigued arms, there's certainly time for that. I mainly just bring this up because I want coaches to be aware there's a term that's used in the ecological dynamics referred to as functionality. And functionality is when you're designing an activity for your athlete or hopefully co-designing that activity with your athlete, 
what is available for pickup and is it similar enough to the game? And then kind of giving yourself a, a representative level of sport or maybe a game-like level of sport. And that game-like level of sport is specific to you. Like you two specifically are the listeners out there. You know, a 10 may be baseball, but I don't, I don't always want it or maybe even need it to be a 10. I want them to be a dial down the complexity, that fast slow that you were talking about, in order to be able to be effective so I can go through that process of solving it. And so there may be the need occasionally to pull away from something that has a little bit less information from the sport. And ways I've gone about using the CLA before and helping coaches use the constraint sled approach before for hitters specifically is you can scale the type of equipment that's, that's uh, being used. So maybe they have a lighter bat, a heavier bat, you got an inloaded bat, they are hitting weighted balls, they're doing things, they have fences that are, that are on the infield, that way it's essentially uh, deterring them to want to hit a ground ball, they're encouraged to now lift the ball and move it into the outfield. So you can kind of see how those aren't telling an athlete, they're not prescribing a solution. Um, it's not prescriptive type information, but yet it's encouraging them to do, or it's inviting them rather to do different things that may be more advantageous for their sport. And I think oftentimes coaches across sports, not just in baseball, forget that that's coaching. They forget that that's valuable. Can you, what's the simplest way that you could articulate that to a parent? Because this is one of the things that I see so much is like, hey, I'm, I, I, this is my famous saying in my brain. Uh, I'm really good at this and I'm not that good at all. Like I'm not that good at getting people to do what they're, you know, air quotes supposed to do. Right. And so you're sure as heck not either as the parent, because you have a million other things in your life to do. This is all we do to a fault. Right. <laughs> and it's like, what do you tell a parent to get them to understand, you know, Hey, you're actually intelligent enough to help improve their environment, you can affect some of the things that Mr. Yerby is, is teeing up for you. So what would you say to parents? That is a phenomenal question. Uh, you know, what's interesting is I've had that question a lot in the, probably the past year or so that I've been at Starters. And so I, I say that only because I've had to deliver that answer to parents before in different sports, but I wanted to make it more relevant for baseball. So I'll take a crack at it here and hopefully this is helpful. So I will, I want you to imagine, you know, uh, John, Jill, whoever it may be you're talking to, I want you to imagine that I'm working with little Johnny. Can you imagine if I'm standing right there with little Johnny and I tell you, okay, I want you to have your elbows up. You're going to have your, your elbow in tucked a little bit tighter here. You're, you're going to have your pelvis rotated in this way. Your foot's going to be back here. When the ball comes here, you're going to move your head. I mean, you can kind of get where I'm going. I'm not a hitting coach, but you get my point. You're, you're, you know, overloading them with information, inundating them with the way in which they need to orient their body in order to even pick up a, a traveling ball. So that's one option. Or I can change the size of the ball. I can change the distance in which it's being thrown. I can change the weight of the bat that's being used. I can change the speed in which the ball is coming in. I can mix in different pitches or I can keep the pitch consistent. I can have different individuals throw. I can use um, equipment in front of where they are. That way it encourages them to lift the ball over that. Essentially, John Jill, what I'm able to do by using the manipulation of task constraints is encouraging Johnny to be able to organize his body in a way that invites him to do certain things without me having to inundate with him, him with information and tell him exactly how to behave. And one thing you may be asking yourself is, well, what it will, you know, obviously that's really helpful, but I need you to tell him how to move. Well, keep in mind that what we perceive is going to be the driver of our movement. So 
I'm a 38 year old, I mean, a washed up athlete. Johnny is a rising star that's 13, 14, that's able to move. Don't you think that his perceptions are going to be different than my perceptions? The answer is obviously yes. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't make a suggestion like, out of curiosity, what were you intending to do there? Oh, I was, I, I was trying to pull the ball. Okay, well, where was that pitch? Uh, that pitch was on the outside part of the plate. Well, what else could you have done with it? I guess I could have gone opposite field. So you're not telling the athlete necessarily what to, you, to do. You're just educating their intention, which is essentially how they aim to interact with the world around them or aim, aim to interact with their task. Okay, or it could be a question such as, uh, John Jill, let's say I can provide value by, I noticed that your son was kind of looking towards the left a little bit. And I asked him out of curiosity, where were, where were your eyes fixated? Well, I was kind of looking to the second baseman, looking around here. Well, maybe we can start in the center of their chest and just scan the entire body as he's going through his motion. So I'm not necessarily telling him where to look, okay, or excuse me, what to see, but I'm telling him where to look. So I'm just helping and able to help that athlete by providing some suggestions, but more importantly, designing an environment to where he can be the driver of his own movement. Now, which would you prefer, me inundate him with information or would you prefer? And so I kind of walk in, that's a longer version. I was trying to give the listeners out there um, more, more to chew on. But for me, oh, I, love it. I want coaches to, I want coaches and parents both to know that we, we are very knowledgeable. You know, the sport coaches are very knowledgeable and there's a reason why we're there. But sometimes what we don't say is it as as powerful as what we are saying. And so how we change what we're doing can be very valuable because coaches forget, as well as parents, that if we're dumping copious amounts of information into the learning space and we're telling the athlete how to move, it's oftentimes going to freeze the way in which they can move, which is not going to be helpful for anyone. So that's something I would say you know, to parents in order to uh, – allow for them to understand that maybe the way in which we go about designing the environments we do, uh, maybe a little bit more um, taking a step back from telling them exactly how to behave. Do you know anything about just like, I've tried to, to say this in, in a nice way. It's like, you also have to, I also like to show people like, it's normal that you're trying to save your kid right now. Right. It's normal that you want them to have, you know, you want them to perform at their best at all the time, you know, but like bringing to light kind of like how do you how do you neutralize some of those expectations so they trust the process? Well, parents like to see results. And I think that one thing that the baseball uh, community is on the cusp of right now, which is really, really positive, And hopefully this helps answer your question is that uh, the the type of data that they're presented with has, has been a, oftentimes quantitative. That's just, it's been numbers, numbers driven. It's only about the numbers. And we forget that the number that you were able to get from us, you know, whoever that company may be, there wasn't even a batter present in that box. So is it valuable to see how that athlete is able to create spin on the ball and the velocity and whatnot? Yes, that's very valuable, but it's not the entire piece to the puzzle. Qualitative information is just as valuable and complements quantitative. So the observational feedback that a coach gives should be equally as important as what numbers that are coming out of whatever type of combine or event or whatever that they're doing, because oftentimes that's less representative of what the sport's going to be like. And so one thing that we actually are doing and a lot of great facilities are doing it, I would imagine you guys are using information like this as well, 
is we are capturing in-game information. So we, baseball has all this technology. It's actually got more than a lot of sports. We need to use it, but use it outside of just non-live ABs and use it just outside of hitting off the tee. I mean, that's a very, very low game-like scale, even though it has components that exist within baseball. I'd like to see what it looks like in a scrimmage. What is blast motion and, you know, and uh, hit tracks? And what does that information look like whenever I'm scrimmaging? Maybe it's inner squad scrimmages. Maybe it's if you have club teams, each club team scrimmaging one another. And then we can compare that information to what we're finding in less complex situations. It's funny that you say that because Do I, you know I people maybe doing think this? about. I just asked I'm if you knew you. somebody doing it because I, I, Iowa does it. So we, we just started the process at Starters. It was part of my position um, starting. So we are capturing information over the winter. So we're in here in Minneapolis. and It's a bright, beautiful, sunny day today with no snow on the ground. But uh, we'll be getting cold here pretty soon. And so we are capturing, if we look at that game-like scale of 10 being the sport, one being the furthest thing from it, maybe some of the stuff that we're doing is right in the middle right now just because we don't have a full field to work with. We don't have as many players. But we're capturing what live AB information looks like. And then we have a sports scientist on staff. And so as we move, as we have this information, we move into the summer, we can start to uh, notate when does so-and-so, you know, struggle. They struggle in night games. They struggle against left-handed pitchers. And so what do we want to do as coaches then? We want to expose them to more night games and expose them to more left-handed pitchers in order to hopefully shore up some of the gaps that they're in. So we're taking stuff that's beyond just the numbers itself. We want to know the process of how they were successful or unsuccessful in order to use that information wisely. And so some of that information is just documenting the setting. You guys have heard me oftentimes talk about, you know, if I'm going into a, into a practice design, I want, to, I want to note what was the weather like that day? Was it windy? Was it overcast? What was the temperature? Was the individual fatigued? Did they seem emotionally stressed? And I'm taking notes on this. And then what tasks did we undertake that day? And so for me, that information allows for me to design in more relevant situations for them later on. But yeah, we just started it at Starters to answer your question, uh, because we want to be able to provide a little bit more fruitful opportunity for them in order to experience stuff that they're not as good at. John, you were going to ask something. I apologize. You know, it's just funny that you, there, you, I'm all, I'm all over the place right now on stuff that you've thrown because I like just I always I always lean on my personal story and stuff and coming back from injury, being an East Coast guy uh, in Florida, just humidity, basically Northwest Florida, Southern Alabama. I grew up with humidity, rain, um, being outside, and and I remember the first time <clears throat> I played baseball. My first year playing pro ball was in the Pecos League in New Mexico. Never felt with six thousand foot elevation living there never dealt with super dry air and I couldn't feel the ball. And so it starts making sense when you see all these guys like the, the uh, Dominicans are notorious for creating their own goo inside of a dip can and it's so they can grip the ball. And looking back on it, they, they probably experiencing worse than me. They're even more humid in their country in the summer and the winter when they're playing. And so they go to America, maybe they play in Colorado, maybe they play in New York, maybe they play in Canada, right? And it's cold. And they, every, I've never met a Latin guy that enjoys the cold weather. Never met one of them. They're always 18 layers, five turtlenecks, you know, hoodie, the whole thing that they can. And I just resonate so much in that because I remember I was like, I got to do something about this. I didn't know what to do. Um, and it's funny. I ended up finding this guy that I was playing with in Mexico and he handed me this little thing, this little cup. And he was like, dude, check this out. Cause I remember I, I tried pine tar. I tried uh, gorilla grip. I tried all this stuff. And he goes, this is bowler's grip. Okay. He goes on a scale of one to 10. If pine tar is 10, this is like a four. 
And I remember putting it on my hand and you got that little tack and then we only last like a little bit of an inning. And I know this is kind of taboo and people don't talk about this in baseball, but I don't care because every pitcher that I've ever played with through 95 did something. So like, it's just a part of the game and just being able to adapt to those scenarios. I remember playing in Mexico city and not one pitch I threw broke and the elevation, it's the highest field in the world. It's like 8,500 mm-hmm. elevation. And so I'm snapping banger sliders and they're staying straight the whole time. And I'm like, what is going on? Like there was just no friction in the air for it to grab anything. So you're just throwing these weird spinning pitches and you have to just completely adapt to what you have that day. Right. And so you went over some stuff um, that, that really made sense to me. Um, and, and maybe this is my Alan Yeager brain. Cause I've just talked to him and obviously you and I need to have some more conversations, but I can, I've always been that cerebral type athlete where I can take myself, I can go exactly to the day, the time, the cold, the feeling to when I broke my elbow, I can go into the other freak out part where I went from uh, 2000 people that I ever pitched in front of in one day to 6,000 to 60,000 all in a three day period. Oh, and wow. I remember being, being in a massive stadium in New Mexico and be like, what is this? This is a different thing. I remember coming set, and overgone and feeling the ground rumbling underneath me. And then in the eighth inning with the bases loaded two outs and they're blaring reggaeton music at me with all of their concert speakers at me, trying to get me to throw a ball or do anything. There is zero care for like etiquette in baseball in Mexico and the international community. And they wouldn't even stop the music till I got my leg to the top of the top of my leg kick. And so being able to deal with that level of adversity and then coming back and then go to a Padres game. And I'm like, Hey, you guys got it made. Like we're over here. They're sipping martinis and hanging out, not even roasting people in San Diego. And I remember just getting, I remember being in the bullpen and just getting my name yelled at and just be like, Sintes, gringo, Sintes, gringo, Sintes, like just for like two hours. Like all these guys wanted to do was just pester and annoy me as you know, before I went in the game. And so I always tell this funny story too, where, a lot of these organizations, uh, they try to mess with a lot of the foreign guys, right? And so I remember coming out of the pen in one of the uh, stadiums and they started chanting, gringo sucks. And then I turned it on. I was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to show you. And so it's, it's, a very fun, it's a very fun thing to try to take these experiences, like you were saying, and tell the story to the kid and see if you can have them, you know, go along with you on this journey of storytelling and tell, make them understand, like, like you were saying, you know, um, first time pitching in a stadium was something I didn't really think about until I went to Wichita with a kid. First time pitching at night in a stadium with a jumbotron. Like, I didn't even think that was a thing either. And a kid like told me, he's like, I, he's like, I, I don't even know where I was. I was throwing, there was a radar gun behind me on the screen and I've never pitched in a stadium like this before. And the kid totally broke down and it makes sense. The kid was from a very small school D11 is our joke on it, but I think it's D6 or whatever. But, you know, he was, he was the best athlete in, you know, I don't know, probably a state at his level. Right. And, and so just listening to him tell me about what he felt, you know, and, and, I just, I just had a really adverse career coming up that I, I just got thrown into the fire a lot of situations, whether it was junior college baseball, and I wasn't used to another team yelling at me while I was pitching, right? Like, I don't really understand what that was. That's a new thing. I'm not used to these guys. Like, you know, you throw a ball and it's up and they're like, get him a bucket. Yeah. And you're like, what? Like, are you allowed to talk to me? 
indirectly while I'm on the mound, right? I don't know. Wait, you're not supposed to talk to me while I'm doing this. Right. <laughs> and so looking at it now and like the kind of the game that I love to play now, and, and you and I spoke about this a little bit off air, is that like pitching and hitting to me is just one-on-one basketball. And if you look at the best, like almost at every sport, there's an edge, there's a little cockiness, and there's also a little shit talk. Like I love the Last Dance documentary and Michael Jordan talks about how you just mm-hmm. used to create things. And I just remember looking at dudes off the top of my head, this guy's in Korea right now. It's a hitter. His name's Roberto Ramos. He's hit like 48 jacks this year. Completely disrespected by the Rockies organization. They absolutely let him go. I couldn't believe when they released him. I was like, this guy's, and he's one of the best left-handed hitters in the league. I remember when I was playing down there. And he and I, before the game, we kind of progressed with each other through the levels of Mexico. And we always ended up facing each other. They'd always bring me in to face him. Like, it's just what it was. And he was a left-handed hitter. And I just remember like, this is the guy that can't beat you ever, like ever. You can't let this guy beat you here in the middle of nowhere, minor league Mexico winter ball, or whether you're in the big leagues, it's just not going to happen. And so I still DM him, you know, and just, I'm just a big fan of him. Cause I mean, he's, he's the donkey lefty that just, he's all in on bat flips in Korea and everything. And he like, he just has a blast with it, you know, and they're just trying to have fun there. And I just remember just seeing holes and trying to figure out, you know, game plans on doing things and just trying to be different. And like, as a closer, I was a cutter slider guy. And then like, I, I still throw seven pitches. And I just remember like out of nowhere throwing a split to him and him swinging at it and then looking at me in the box, like, what was that? And I was like, oh yeah, you, you forgot. I'm a starter actually that has these other skills that I just decided not to use until like two years later facing you because I faced you, I don't know, 12 months, at least twice a month every year for the past four years. So like, that long-term game where Scherzer and, and Verlander and, and, you know, all of these guys go where they start remembering, like, I got to face this dude for 10, 15 years. What am I going to show him over this whole thing? I, I think that skill part of the whole thing really, really makes a lot of sense to me because I, I just – a lot of the pitchers that I've talked to or baseball players in general, if you ask them about their favorite moments or their worst moment or whatever, like, they always tell this kind of story. So it's very interesting to me that you're – you know, how early do you go into this idea with these kids, like of, of this storytelling aspect? Well, I want to answer that question first. And I, I wrote down a few notes of things I want to trace back to of, uh, your story oh, there. That's good. awesome. I'm like, I'm like muting my camera because I'm laughing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, as far as the kids. So one, one question I actually didn't answer earlier, which I can answer this question with as far as uh, Cass was a- asking me, like, how do I go about my sessions? And I started going down, obviously, the story of how I work with American football players and potentially how you can do it in the, in the sport of baseball, how I do it from the director of athlete learning position here at Starters. Um, being the fact that I work in the performance sector, we do we do the weight room sessions, we do the speed and agility sessions. And so how I go about doing this uh, within our performance sessions is I don't have this like, hey, we're going to talk about it for an hour of how this is so different. They just experience it. Now, one thing that we do during the warm-up, because for me, the warm-up is essentially a place where creativity can live and creativity should start. I mean, it can start outside of the warm-up, but within sport and within movement. Uh, the warm-up, which is going to exist within the sports skill practice, or it's going to exist within the performance session, is going to be an opportunity for the coach to allow the athlete to have some autonomy. It's going to allow the athlete to have some ownership, to have some fun, and to be able to be creative because creativity and adaptability, in our opinion, go hand in hand. And so why I say all that is those those are things I actually will say to varying levels of athletes, like as they're kind of getting set up and ready to go and we're getting ready to, to hit the warm up. 
And so I don't really have a particular like, hey, this is the spiel. This is how this is different. They just experienced it very, very different, whether it be for my football players or whether it be for the performance athletes and the baseball players and softball players we work with at starters. Now, I can tell you that whenever this happens, what they then do is they then start asking questions and they're like, this is really different. This is really unique. Or, hey, um, this is I love this game. Why are we playing this game? And I'm like, oh, that's a great question. Um, what does this game feel like to you? They're like, gosh, well, it kind of feels a little bit like rugby and it kind of feels uh, somewhat like baseball. And it kind of feels essentially what they're asking. And the reason why they're asking is there's elements or there's invitations that are that are in their sport that are also in these games. So my role is to at least provide some opportunities that will exist and will be similar to how their sport is going to um, unfold. Now, from a sporting coach example, you can do way more than that. But I don't give them, to answer your question, John, I don't, I don't go over this huge spiel. Now, if it's very different than what you're used to doing or if you're a coach that's starting to use maybe a constraints-led approach for the first time or you're taking – um, you know, maybe a step back and you're not going to talk every single repetition because sometimes that can be the most powerful tool in a coach's toolbox is just to allow a few reps to unfold so the athlete can start to self-regulate. Um, if that's the case, then maybe there might need to be some type of, hey, we're going to try a few things. I, I want you to be as open and honest as you can with your feedback. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to mention, hopefully it answers your question. Um, yeah, no, yeah, perfect. I wanted to mention, which I think are fantastic with your story that you just told is you were you were essentially discussing the relationship between the performer and the performance environment. And you also layered in, whether you knew it or not, you layered in so many valuable pieces with the sociocultural constraints of different areas. You talked about Mexico, you talked about Korea, you talked about Dominicans coming up and playing in the States. The, the social norms are very different. And so why that's impactful is, is we're not just a robot out there executing a movement and we're doing it in a sterile environment. That environment may have someone yelling at me like, wait a second, I, I didn't know you could talk to me while I'm doing this. So now if that's the case, don't, don't we have it on our shoulders as coaches to potentially allow for our athletes to be in that type setting to allow for experience and exposure? So I mean, if you've listened to any other podcasts that I've done, I mention this one often, but it seems to, to grab people each time. And this isn't something that I initially started. I actually heard this for the first time from a co-founder with me at Emergence, Sean Mishka, he would invite girlfriends, boyfriends, parents, other athletes out to the same session as the athlete he's working with. And at first, you're like, gosh, why would you do that? Well, guess what? They might have to play them or their parents might be at the game. So that will cause certain levels of anxiety. It's going to change their emotional state and their emotional state is going to influence how they go about solving said task, throwing a ball, hitting a ball, fielding a ball, so on and so forth. So if we are truly viewing ourselves as problem setters, as problem designers, environment architects, or co-designing something, we should also include the emotional aspects of it or the anxiety that can play on a performer by putting them in a setting to where it can allow for them to experience it. Now, we also need to be sensitive to the fact that it can't be existing at a high complexity level all the time. Because if I start to see a pitcher and they're sailing tons of pitches over and over, Yes, that's still beneficial for learning. They're still gaining experience, but I don't want them to just be, you know, unsuccessful and essentially, you know, not functional on a regular basis. That's where you might then, you know, reduce the level of noise that's being chirped at them. Or if they're throwing live ABs and you have someone back there that's calling balls and strikes, which I think coaches should be doing if they're certainly if they're in uh, cage settings and they're calling calling balls and strikes, and that that pitcher 
or that hitter one is really struggling, maybe you pull the balls and strikes out of it, but you still have the live AB. So I'm reducing the complexity a little bit to scale the information so that way it's not quite as dense or not quite as challenging for them. But what I'm not doing is I'm not breaking the movement apart. Because what coaches oftentimes forget, whether it's from hitting or from pitching, we have all these, and the baseball term, uh, community uses the term constraint drill. Essentially, it's just an activity, and constraints are always present. So with that being said is if I'm isolating tasks far too often, that fails to recognize that whenever I'm isolating it, that those, those components of that system are reliant on one another. They're codependent in order for them to perform that function. So if I am having someone go through like a partial motion of swinging, I, re I allow or I rely on the momentum. I rely on the information, the ball traveling at me in order to have a successful self-organized swing. Because whenever that multi-articular action unfolds in the sport, I need to allow for the relationship between the system to allow for me to hit a ball. And I'm kind of going off into a, a different direction now. But one other thing I wanted to mention that you said, which was awesome, you're talking about throwing at different elevations. And so one thing we actually talked about at ABCA, um, and I can't remember who brought it up, uh, but they were talking about temperature. And I said, well, for me, I'm not a pitching coach, but if I'm working in a colder climate, or I can give you the example of a warmer climate in a second, but if I'm working in a colder climate and my athlete's going to have to throw oftentimes when it's pretty chilly, but yet we're throwing in the friendly confines of a cage that day, I may take my bucket of balls and go set them outside for an hour before that athlete comes into the facility. Now, the listeners out there are like, why would you do that? Hopefully, it's pretty obvious, but I'm going to have to have um, different uh, perceptual sensation through sense of touch and haptic information as I'm working through different types of pressure through the ball and as I'm exploring and working with that ball in order to manipulate that ball or throw that ball well. And that might mean I throw balls with different pliability. So there's different amounts of squish to it or they have raised seams, they're scuffed more so. So you're, as a coach, manipulating the task constraint of changing the ball, meaning they're throwing maybe a regulation ball, but they're, they could also throw one that's a little lighter, a little heavier. There's different ways in which you as a coach can help there, or you can just change the, uh, the uh, temperature of the ball or have them throw in warmer settings. And you kind of get where I'm going with this. Like you could, you just, you just did a really nice job of capturing how important the, in, the environmental conditions are. And that I love. Right. Just I appreciate it. I wanted to go back to something you just said a second ago too, because yeah, I wanted to jump in on the live AB thing. And, and um, so I've, I've, I've done this a couple times in my life and I'm going to be doing it a lot more now that we're doing pro live ABs, but being able to stay on the mound consistently, like I, like I said, I threw 145 pitches straight with just a couple of sips of water. I feel like it's easier actually to do that than to stop and go with the inning. Um, it feels to me like a good long toss session where I'm just going and going and going. As long as I'm staying active, you know, I give myself the 15, 20, um, uh, 20 seconds right in between throws so I can get my ATP back. That's my third level right there. And then just keep going. Um, that being said, you know, one of the things that I had done when I was rehab, when I was back in Florida with one of my pitching coaches is, is um, we wanted to see how many throws that I could do. And he had his entire team face me. And the first round on each guy, we did three fastballs and they knew it was coming. And it was very interesting on each guy how they handled those fastballs, right? Some some just took three in a row. Now, we did the same thing with our pro live babies the other day. Some guys swung first pitch and just sold out. Some guys watched it. You know what I mean? And some guys, like, did a little partial take, like, tried to find their timing. And I do remember this one guy back in um, – and he ended up being a first-rounder, of course, right? And this dude – I remember I was probably, like, 92 that day. And I went 92, and I painted it black and pulled it down the line for a bomb and smoked the top of the foul pole. 
And I went, hmm. And so then he deep exhaled on me and then called me a bitch. And I went, I said, okay, hard as I can. Here you go. Here it comes again. Ripped it. It was about 93. Did the exact same thing. It was even lower and smoked the foul pole again. And I said, you, sir, are a good hitter. Now, of course, I threw a cutter and a slider after that and we ruined his day. But like just the ability to stay that locked in, I, you just don't see it very often, right? You don't see the guy that can just get out of his car, go get dressed, walk into the box and be ready to play the game. Because I, I think we've put almost too much into this prep idea. We go play a pickup game of basketball. I mean, how long are you stretching? A minute? 30, you're going to do a couple quads, do a couple jumps, stretch out, and you start playing the game. And like our, our, our catching guy at our facility um, always gives me a joke that my arm swing is my warm-up. That's about it. They got to go like this right here, a couple twisties, some up and downs, and let's get going, right? And so being able to simulate that idea like you were talking about and just – you know, rip fastballs. There was even our little catcher. We had a kid that's in high school that really wants to be a professional baseball player. And I don't think he's ever seen 85 consistently. And I go, dude, here you go. Here's your opportunity. You've seen the velo machine. You've seen everything you can. I'm going to rip it as hard as I can. And it was probably like an 87 or 88. And the kid was on time and he smoked it. Everybody got excited. Right. And, and I was like, dude, awesome. I said, okay, here it comes. Can you do it again? Two in a row. And he was just like, man. And it was hilarious. And right after that, we turned the game on. He completely abandoned his strategy. And I just diced him up. I threw another fastball. He didn't swing. I'm like, what are you doing? Right? I, you know, obviously, we didn't know anything. And then I went cutter, slider, swing, swing, see you later. And I was like, you, you're not even playing the game at that point. You're, you're trying to see what's going to happen instead of the anticipation of what we talk about with fast flow. And so it's past its challenge point. Right, yeah. right. And so I think that side of the yeah. game is what – you know, we really specialize in the fast flow is being able to anticipate that, you know, talk about the strategy, talk about the environment and go all the way through it. Yeah. I mean, you bring so much clarity to the importance of the environment, the importance of understanding the athletes and having that relationship and you as the coach, um, having a good understanding of, of where their level of skill maybe, maybe is at that time, you know, are they, are they struggling just coordinating themselves in order to swing at the ball effectively? Are they, are they adaptable? Are they able to go the opposite way, even on pitches that are a little more inside because of how they configure their body? Are they, are they using all the available information that's available in the environment prior to the pitch even unfolding, such as you know, what the count is, what inning it is right now, uh, knowing who's on the mound, like having situational awareness, and then, and then whenever movement starts to occur, then picking that information up online and using it. So that part is so valuable. I, I just know that the, the, the thing that, oftentimes coaches forget is that perception isn't static. It's a dynamic process. And we can't teach our athletes to be dexterous and help our athletes to become dexterous if we're having them do isolated practice on a regular basis. So one thing I've seen you guys do quite a bit on social media, which you know I love, is just seeing more live ABs. And then knowing when as a coach to dial that, that uh, information, I almost said information because that's what you're doing. You're dialing the information up or dialing the complexity up a little bit and trying to make it even more game-like. You know, I've got to be honest, where I thought you were going to go with that comment when you started, um, which you may be doing already, is you were talking about how, you know, the ability or the need to be able to throw for longer durations or maybe maybe what you have available as an athlete, um, whether that be the coach right there. I thought you were getting ready to say to where you were going to pull pitchers in certain situations or, or create larger, let me not even pull them, but create larger breaks 
if they were to throw X amount of balls in a row or X, or if they were to give up X amount of hits, like you were going, there was going to be a consequence present. That consequence is going to be, all right, it's going to be a three minute break. So-and-so gets to come in, throw a few, a, a few live pitches. And then all of a sudden now your turn is to come in again. Not so much to where they get cold and there's potential for injury, but now there's a consequence present, which is going to help shape his behavior even more so. Because if I give up three hits in a row, well then, you know, coach John's going to pull, he's going to pull me for two minutes. Right. Dude, we could right. we could do something where it's like you you just uh, you you go with a guy and you guys go every other guy unless unless you get a strikeout. So you get a strikeout, you get to face another guy. You strike him out, you get to face another guy. You don't strike the guy out, they make contact. Next guy's in. So why Tyler, are we- our, our 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 entire philosophy is not hit the ball. Don't let him hit the ball. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> That's a good Go, Tyler. Say what you're going to say, Tyler. But, but no, no, no. But I lo- why I like that is, is you're you're layering in consequences, and everything we do consequences. We don't. I problem. haven't thought about that. But it's such a it's such a simple shift towards a more athlete centered um, environment versus a coach centered environment. And I'm not saying what you were doing prior was not that. That's not my point. My point being yeah. is that you were allowing for the the situation and you're allowing for the consequences that are present to, to play upon that individual and their emotions and their anxiety levels. Cause all of those key performance um, inhibitors as they're termed, all of those things are going to shape how hard you could throw a ball, how, how coordinated when you're throwing it, how you can place it in addition to the light that's going to be present in the area. But all you're doing is giving them that exposure under those um, situations where there's higher anxiety and pressure and I, I can't believe I've gone this long without mentioning him, but a uh, good friend of mine, Rob Gray, talks about how it, the, the literature points to it doesn't even have to be similar to um, the consequences. Don't even have to be similar to the sport. I prefer them when they're similar to the sport, but it can be something entirely different, and it's still going to be beneficial for that athlete. So it could be it could be doing something they're not they're not really in, you know wanting to do. But I would prefer to just go, hey, you know what, uh, next batter up or next pitcher up, and then kind of swapping and alternating. And then another thing you mentioned, which I thought you were getting ready to say, and you may have actually said a little, um, in there somewhere, was as a coach, rather than being right there next to the athlete on a regular basis, and I actually just had this discussion with a, um, one of the pitching coaches at our facility, a uh, super bright guy named Kevin Walsh. Um, he, what he's talking about doing, he was floating this idea to me the other day. He's like, Tyler, what do you think about this? It may sound, it may sound crazy, but what do you think about this? He's like, I'm going to, especially towards um, athletes leaving, whether they you know, be in college, pro ball, whatever it may be, rather than me standing right behind them or just to the side of them as a, pitcher, a pitching coach, what do you think about me going over and kind of simulating me being in, the, in the, you know, the, the box? And I'm over here in the dugout, and I'm sitting back. I'm letting them throw, kind of self-regulate, try to figure some things out, and then I may go out there and approach them, step in, so on and so forth. And I just like it because it starts to bring more awareness towards what they actually experience in the sport. So, but I love your idea, Cass. I think you guys. That's do it. how I got hit in the face. By the way, I, I shattered my cheekbone not catching that ball as the pitching coach. Some somebody's um, I, head coach I, wasn't that, too happy that day. I'd love to go further on your idea too, because the way the way we even talk about it is, is very along that lines. We go even further. Like nobody can throw the ball for you. Nobody can throw it. They can't. Nobody can say anything to you that will help you throw the ball. You have to come up with the own words, the own feelings inside your head. Now we have a lot of constraint drills and things, and we have a lot of video that can show you what you do successfully, right? And so um, something I had written, I got, I got notes too, brother. Like you, I've, I've got a full page right there, so I appreciate it. Um, but one of the things we like to talk about is understanding like that it's against another person, right? And then you are using your pitches like a combination Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, or whatever it is, to present an idea 
to the hitter and see if he can't think, you know, find out what it is. Like, um, that's, that's the whole, you know, cutter, a cutter is the latest moving pitch out of all the pitches. And so we, the fast, slow idea, I play a little bit different, more complicated game like Maddox did, which was fast, medium, slow. And I'm, I'm a Maddox freak. I, I followed him so much. And I, I, I really saw how he used to do his stuff where I, I, everybody talked about Maddox didn't throw hard. Maddox didn't throw hard. Well, he lived in the medium zone and he could run it up to 92, but he chilled around 84, 86. And he would throw cutters, splits, change-ups, and sliders all around that speed. And then he would drop a curveball off at like 75, right? But mainly everything was coming around the same thing, and it was just changing directions on everything. And so being able to play that game and convey it to a 14-year-old who understands the offensive strategy that a other 14-year-old is being taught to him with the most basic sequence, which is fast, fast, slow – if you could just stay away from the basic norms, which there's four of them, all pitching coaches call them, right? It's just very easy for these kids to learn the basic strategy of the game of baseball. And so 85% of the game is not double cuts, running to first, ground balls, double plays. It's not it. That's 15% of the game. 85% of the game is the game on TV, pitcher versus hitter. That's what it is. We don't even talk about it in the media like it's correct. We're scared to put spin rates and angles on the screen. Like everybody's too dumb to handle the information. Like it's unreal that golf puts a freaking red streamer on it, gives you spin rate, wind direction and everything. And everybody's freaking out like it is. Meanwhile, we've had flights go to MLB for the past 10 years. So it's just a different way to go about it. And baseball is a video game. It's really what it is. It comes down to it. It's a baseball, it's a video game with attributes. And the more we can actually treat it like that and understand that, you know, the reason why Trevor Bauer won the Cy Young because he has the fastest spinning fastball in the game and his curveball spins at 3,400 RPMs. And there's only like two other people that have over 3,200 RPM breaking balls. And the only way you can do that is if you're a nerd like me and knows where to go to fan graphs and look at it, but it doesn't even come until the next day. So like, there's just a lot of things that really help a pitcher understand what they're doing. And, and looking at like golf and how golf coaches work with they're athletes pitching and golf are very similar to that. Cause like golf instructors say, oh, I can't swing the club for you, man. Like that's where I got it from. Like nobody can swing it for you. You and know, it's, you just gotta yeah. know what you're doing. No, you, you bring up the, the a great point there is allowing the athlete to become attuned to their, to their surroundings, attuned to the information. When you talk about Bauer and the spin rate that he has, what, what that also, the other side of the puzzle, which is, is, you know, incorporated with that is the fact that he's able to do that, but he knows when to throw it and he knows how to throw it. So he's sensitive to what batters are up there. He may know like, hey, this is the pitch I'd like to use, but I might not use that pitch in this situation because so-and-so that I'm, you know, I'm facing um, has hit that pitch well before, or I'm going to find out different ways to place that ball. So I think all those numbers, and that's the one thing I've mentioned a number of times back, you know, early this year and throughout the year, as far as how much information uh, baseball is able to gather and the technology baseball has can be used to our advantage if we can use the information well. And I think that in baseball, if it's done in isolated activities too often, information is not super valuable for us. But if it's done in situations that are very similar to the sport, it can be so valuable because it allows for us as coaches to capture, you know, when they're doing well, then we can continue to design activities that are similar to that. And then if they're struggling, whether it be a night game, like I mentioned earlier, against a lefty, or if it's a pitcher and I struggle throwing in humid conditions and I struggle throwing in counts that are down, well, guess what? As a coach, I can then put them in a situation, even in a cage, maybe it's not humid, but even in a cage to where, hey, the next, we're going to, you're going to throw five uh, to five batters today or 10 batters today. And all of them, the count's going to start, you're going to be down. But why? It doesn't tell you what pitch to throw. 
it just means that you're going to get an opportunity to select pitches and then effectively work through the process of throwing those pitches well whenever you're in a count where you're down. You know, it's one and two, or maybe it's what even, maybe it's one and one. But you get my point. My point being is that they allow allows right. for them to work on that spin rate, it allows for them now to, you know, to solve the process. But you're bridging the gap as a coach by designing an activity that helps support their their weaknesses. And what's your think- autopilot pitch, right? Like I, I was a guy that could drop in a slider or a cutter any day of the week. And so like yeah. I'm down 2-0, I'm going to throw a little cutter, yeah. a little slider. I'm going to catch you cheating because you, you think I throw hard. <laughs> you know, and like we got a ton of kids that that if you ask the coach what their best pitch is, they say fastball. But if you ask the kid best pitch, like most consistent pitch, they'd be like cutter, slider. I don't know. Right. And other kids have the same way. And I think it's just about educating each kid. Like, what are you best at? What are you, yeah. they, we, one of my favorite things that we do all the time is this. Uh, we try to create anxiety like you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. We do a strike competition. We do it all. We do one on one. Right. And so we go first to three strikes. The guy who gets three strikes first, the other guy kid has to answer. Hot shot rules. If you're down three oh, you can go three in a row and get back in the game and get to finals. Right. And so all the time, as soon as someone hits it, I'll just say the scenario. And like everybody freaks out the first time they do it. All right, here you go. Right. He's got three. You got one. You got to go two in a row in the zone for a strike in order to advance to the finals. If not, you lose. Do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And every time, here it comes. Uh, uh, and they sail it, right? Or they spike it or whatever it is. And it's like, once we take away the sting of that anxiety and they're eight games deep, they're like, oh, well, I'll just keep doing what I was doing. You know, and, and trying to take the stigma away from that as fast as possible, I think it's a very underrated side of, of teaching. Because I was an anxiety guy too. I mean, yeah. I had my head coach in college breaking clipboards and we threw a first pitch of the game, ball. Like he called time in the middle of me of a no-hitter and I balked in a run. Like, it was crazy the amount of distractions that you allow yourself to hear when you know the tone of voice. Beautiful points there around the importance of, of bringing in those inhibitors and, and understanding that they are present in the activities. And you guys, it sounds like you've been using them a tremendous amount, which I, you know, I commend you for simply because I've been in a lot of baseball facilities, been around a lot of baseball companies and far too often they steered more towards the well. We want to make sure that they're comfortable, and as long as they're confident, and let's let's not let's not put aside the fact that's not important. However, if we as coaches are not helping to design activities that allow them to work on portions of the game that they're struggling with, maybe even things they're really good at, I think that we're not doing it justice. And that's that's essentially the opposite of that skill adaptation process to essentially go back to where we started, which is essentially how we view skill as something that is essentially changing slightly over time. And it's this reciprocal functional relationship that the pitcher or the hitter or the fielder has with the sport of baseball. So I, two questions. One, I want to talk about like, what is the, what are you looking for? And then also, do you know what Z health is? And I don't care how you answer it, but like the, the, what are you looking for thing is, you, you got to assess movement at some level, right? And so, right, yeah, right. go ahead. You know what I mean? Um, answer Z Health first. Definitely heard of it. A couple, a couple guys that I'm familiar with, I've presented for them before or done different things for them before. So I'm familiar, but not extremely familiar with them. But I know who they are. And as far as what am I looking, what am I looking for? Great question. And it's gonna, it's gonna differ for every athlete. It's gonna differ for every sport. 
I'm very different with how I view what I'm looking for. I do not have a particular assessment that tells me that they can move this way, check, you know, check that box. They now are an effective uh, pitcher, they're an effective hitter, they're an effective thrower. I more look at it as an observation over time as a sport movement uh, specialist, as a sport movement coach, supported by the outcome or supported by the data that they have from their game. So it's not like that's not important. It's just not the end-all be-all. So I will look at how they're effectively solving problems. So for example, when I'm working with any of my football players, at the end of the practice that particular day, I jot down notes on the session. You know, we had a lot of 1v1, 1v2 activities that were near the boundary after the catch as a receiver. And they were very elusive and were not getting brought down on the first tackle, or they weren't even getting touched on the first uh, level. They were able to, you know, make it to the next level if they were running back per se. So I'm actually jotting down if they're more effective in these particular activities that I'm designing. And then whenever we look at those activities of how they exist in their sport, are they more successful in their sport? And so I use that in conjunction with, so the observational analysis in conjunction with the, like I talked about earlier, the environmental conditions that I'm, um, that I'm noting, the individual characteristics as far as their emotions and whatnot. And then are their numbers also complementing what I'm seeing as far as their yards after the catch, their uh, ability to make people miss in space, so on and so forth. So from a pitching standpoint or from a hitting standpoint, my my point is, in summary, it can't just all be about, oh, those mechanics look really good. I mean, we see it all the time in baseball, and I'm not faulting the people that use just the image of the hitter or just the image of the pitcher. Some coaches, you guys have done this uh, well. A couple others that I follow on social media do a good job of describing the, the situation, the entire event in the actual like meat of the post. But far too often, other coaches will look at it and go, oh, that was a beautiful swing. Well, that's funny because he actually missed the ball. You know, so it's like there's not a perfect swing we're trying to we're trying to imprint on their brain somewhere. They continually have to be able to be stable. So I actually prefer um, if we're looking for variability within a particular action, it's only considered functional if it continues as the constraints are changing. So if as a coach, I'm changing the speed, I'm changing the placement, and they're successful often. You define often for me. If they're successful often then I think that that is a, a functional movement. And for me, often is more than half the time in baseball as a hitter. Shoot, it could be three or four times out of 10, right? So we're, we're looking for stable movements, but those stable movements also have to be adaptable. So I don't have the perfect answer for you because guess what? Nobody has it. We're not there yet. We don't have, we don't have the perfect technology to capture because we can't um, capture perception. We can capture the action that unfolds, which is a glimpse of what their perception was but we can't capture it with just biomechanics that's a great i love that answer i lo absolutely love that answer and i'm well, not saying so, things are important but they're, obviously they're not i was the coming from a standpoint of like i'm i'm sure you're familiar with the goda teaching or just like us being in the world of WEC. you know i you know i i'm this is from my standpoint what really taught me was going in and out of uh, Richard Skank, which is teacher man, the the hitting coach for Aaron Judge. And just like, he has just like any. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Cutting out a little bit. All good. No, I can't hear you, Cass. Jump jump in and out. Yeah, uh, he'll, be, he'll be right back. But yeah, no um, I'm not sure he was, he was doing that. But yeah, man, you, you, um, 
you, you bring up just a ton of points and even like what you were saying, like we talk about it all the time that, you know, you can, that you, we, we look at our training and speaking of the football world in a football schedule type idea, right? If we have live ABs on Friday, your Saturday through Thursday is involved in getting ready for your game, getting ready for the event, right? And, and so, you know, in the game, in, in travel ball and how many games are played here in, in um, California and how things work, it, it's very interesting that, you know, they miss it. Right. We go play eight games in a weekend. And I think the idea of games is what it is. But if you actually count the reps, you count the pitches, you look at time spent, you know, I don't know who's winning. Like if I played seven games as a 34 year old man right there, I'm going to be dead for two weeks. And we got kids playing seven games all the time. Right. And it just doesn't make sense to me on, on like if you pitch game two on Saturday and you throw three innings and you throw 60 pitches and, and however, how old you are. If you're playing shortstop, catching, or center field, the next three games, like the odds of your body and arm holding up are just tremendously low. Like I just don't see it handled that way. And when I was in Mexico and I went to the academies and I go look at it, these guys have this thing down where Tyler, you're on Mondays, Cash, you're on Tuesdays, and I'm on Wednesdays. And they have this whole seven-day cycle where everybody has extra days of rest Everybody knows when they're throwing. If you're a reliever, you're throwing on this day. And they're doing that at 10. They're not doing it at, you know, at, at 22. They're starting these kids to understand what the professional experience really is on how to prepare earlier than anybody else is. You know, we want to get a thousand, we want to get a thousand front toss swings, like you were saying earlier. And we're going to like, make a little Johnny feel good because he was 98% connection on the ball, every, you know, even though it, nobody realizes that this ball floating up is pretty easy to hit. Well, the one thing you mentioned, and this could take us down too many, too many rabbit holes. I unfortunately have to have to jet here in a minute. Next thing you know, we'll probably talk for six hours. So maybe we have to reschedule a second session. No, it's a, um, it wouldn't be thing, terrible. <laughs> one thing that well, I need to make my way down there. I have too many friends in the area. My brother actually lives just North of you guys. So I have to check you out. Um, knowledge of, so you're describing the ecological psychology idea, J.J. Gibson, or the Gibsonian idea of knowledge of. So being able to experience and allow for my experience to guide the way in which I'm able to move because I have a rich experience of my particular landscape, in this case, the sport of baseball, versus it being a deal where I'm performing these activities or these drills that are very isolated uh, from the sport. And yes, they may allow for a little Johnny to have a bat in his hand and hit a, hit a moving ball. And, and I'm not saying there isn't a place maybe for that somewhere, but let's just make it to where it has elements of the, the sport more so that way they have that rich experience, that rich experience can support that problem solving process and that skill adaptation process. Because like I said, I, I mean, I used to view um, the skill acquisition process is something that was permanent. And I was like making it to the, it was a means to an end. And I think inherently we all realize that there's no way that can be. I mean, even the literature that's coming out from an information processing standpoint acknowledges that there's not an automaticity. It's not like it's a permanent, I can automatically do something. I have to be sensitive to my surroundings. And I mean, if that's the case, if you and I, and um, one of my mentors, Keith Davids mentioned if you and I are walking um, out of out of this call, we all walk out and do our own separate things. We're going to be in trouble pretty quickly if if we're not sensitive to our surroundings. So it has to be allowing for us to continue to adapt over. 
before I got kicked off, all I meant to say was there's there's not one way to do anything. And and people that I, I meant to say that just I have gone down that rabbit hole in one thing and I know to never go down it again. It, yep. it, there, there are many, many different ways to solve a problem. And you're exactly right, Cass. And I think that the the important takeaway there, just kind of um, in wrapping up, the important takeaway is is giving the keys back to the athlete. And yes, as a coach, we still need to be present there. We still need to help design a task. But at the same time, we're allowing for their and you, John, you said it a m- number of times in this call, like allowing for their perception to be the driver of their movement because they are in fact the one that's pitching the baseball, hitting the baseball, and fielding it. My friend Jordan Peterson says that you don't want to take somebody's problem away from them, right? Yeah, so like, like he's, a clinical, yeah. cli- he's a clinical he's a clinical psychologist. Like he's not there to solve people's problems. Yeah, cr- I like that. You know? No, it's, it's so it's so true because the way in which I, as an actor, am able to interact with the nuances and intricacies of that problem is up to me because I act on that problem based on my action capabilities and what I'm perceiving and picking up. And, you know, I think that 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 in and of itself describes the sport and the problem solving uh, part of the sport. So beautiful. Tyler, this was amazing. Yes, we'll have 10 part series with you on this. I appreciate you asking for it. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, uh, Dude, this has been unreal. I appreciate it. I don't want to eat up any more of your time. Um, why don't you just let everybody know one more time, um, you know, how they can get a hold of you, where, you know, where your stuff is on the internet and, and, you know, plug, plug anything you want, please. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it's Tyler Yerby, just at Tyler Yerby. I'm primarily on Twitter. I am on Instagram as well, but mainly on Twitter. So either one of those outlets, I do have Facebook, but I just get on there probably once a month. Uh, so Twitter, Instagram at Tyler Yerby. And then uh, the company where I'm the co-founder and co-director of education is Emergence. And we are at Emergent Movement, MVMT. Uh, Emergence was taken, so I had to go for Emergent Movement. So at Emergent Movement. And our entire direction is essentially give coaches that are already these wonderful coaches maybe a different way to view how they can be present in the learning process. Or if they're already using a lot of these ideas to help provide more clarity, to help the underpinning theory support the practice and the way that they design practice for their athletes. And then um, if you guys are ever in the Twin Cities area and want to hit me up, I, I am at Starter Sports Training and we're a baseball company. So trying to be, we don't have a, as cool of a name, like literally Cutter Nation probably is the coolest baseball name. The company <laughs> You're the first one to say that, by the no way. No way. I'm telling you. <laughs> I had this conversation with my coworker Rich. Uh, he, he's at the facility right now, and he was like, "Dude, that that is a sweet name." I'm like, "Yeah, well, I can't throw a cutter, so there." But <laughs> hey, I bet you could. We could have a small conversation, but that'll, that'll <laughs> be. <laughs> sure. Well, guys, I appreciate it. Unfortunately, we're not going to have another get together like we did last. Uh, I say last year, this year uh, for ABCA, a little bit different as far as how the experience will go. But I greatly appreciate the time, the opportunity. Uh, keep doing some amazing things you guys are doing, and. Um, like I said, thank you again. No, no Thanks, problem. Son. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That was last year, by the way. 